And after you get there to Colossians, don't close your Bible up because we'll actually be going over to the book of 1 Samuel as well. So you may want to make a mark in 1 Samuel to kind of tag that, but then come to Colossians, the text we'll look at first, and we'll use 1 Samuel to kind of also supplement what we speak about this morning. As we uh, continue today in our series through Colossians, today I want to share a message with you that I have titled An Audience of One from Colossians chapter 3. Uh, We are in week four of this series, one more week to go as we are looking through the book of Colossians and we are seeing how Christ is to be above all, how he is to have, according to Colossians 1.18, supremacy in everything, that above all else, Jesus should be there. And if you recall at the very outset, week one, as we studied this, we kind of laid the the groundwork, the, the thesis for our time to go through Colossians, and that is to say that because Jesus is first in creation, because he went first in salvation, you and I must put him first in our lives, okay? He is first, he he went first, and he must be placed first in our lives. When our relationship with Christ is established, we take on a new identity, and from that identity, we are then tasked with making sure that we have Christ placed above all. That relationship changes everything about our lives, including the priority that Jesus should have in our lives. In fact, if you look at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in about verse 12, you're going to see how Jesus makes a difference in our lives. Colossians 3 and 12 tells us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you see what he's telling us is that everything about us should be transformed and we should seek to look and to live like Jesus in every relationship that we have. And he focuses in to let us know that that relationship is before an audience of one. Even though it involves a lot of people, Ultimately, it's about one person. Look at what he says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, look at that verse again. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. Okay, in, in, in what? Everything. In everything, whatever you do. In fact, the word for whatever and the word for everything is the same Greek word. It, it literally means each, every, any, all, the whole, all things. 
And he says it's to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that phrase, the name of the Lord Jesus, means that it's done according to the will of Jesus. It is done for the glory of Jesus. It is done in the power of Jesus. So Paul is saying in every interaction, not just the spiritual ones, not just the ones at church, not just the ones in a certain spiritual realm, but in every interaction, you should be able to say whatever you're doing, whatever you're speaking, I'm doing this in the name of one person, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm doing this according to his will. I'm doing this according to to his pleasure. I'm doing this in his name. I'm doing this for his glory. I'm doing this in his power. When you open up your email and you read that email and you reply, you do it in such a way that you're able to say, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus, according to the will of God, for the glory of God, in the power of God. When you have a conversation with someone and you begin to talk about someone else to that other person, you should be able to say, I am doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am doing this in the will of God, according to the will of God. I'm doing this for the glory of God. I'm doing this in the power of God. When you're driving down Highway 90, (laughs) or if I can just be very transparent with you, When you're driving on Stewart Street and you get to the red light at Stewart Street and Highway 90 and you're sitting in the lane that's set to turn and someone pulls up beside you in that lane that when they turn they've got five feet before they have to get in your lane. If that person has a license plate that's out of state or if they have a license plate that's out of county, you cut them some slack. But if that person has a Santa Rosa license plate, you say, "Uh uh-uh, not today, brother. (laughs) And you resolve in your heart that you're going to Florida if you have to. And they are not going to get in front of you, even if they give you a one-fingered salute. (laughs) That's just what I've heard. That when you're driving down the road, you are doing it in the name of the Lord. That illustration I just used is not in the name of the Lord Jesus. But when you drive on Highway 90 and someone merges into your lane, you do what you do. You react in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ according to the will of God in the power of God for the glory of God. I told you Colossians studied preparing for this has been the most challenging uh, series for me to prepare because it's so convicting to me in do I do everything for an audience of one. Paul is calling us to view everything we do, every word we say, every step that we take. It is to be done first and foremost for Jesus. And then Paul outlines for us in verses 18 to 22, we won't read it for time's sake, but he outlines for us the, the typical relationships that the Colossians would have experienced in their daily lives. 
wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, servants to masters, masters to servants, employees to bosses, basically everybody to everybody. And his point is that in every relationship we have, in every interaction of a relationship we have, it should be done first and foremost in the name of the Lord Jesus, according to his will, for his glory, in his power. You may think that you're doing something for someone else. You may, it may look like that you're doing things for them or to them, but in, in actuality, you're doing things for Jesus. You're doing things to Jesus because you live for an audience of one. And so he says in verse 23, whatever, there's that word again, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He mentioned all the relationships, but he says ultimately you've got an audience of one. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ in every second of every day and every single thing that you do. So when you make a decision about how to reply to that email, you are responding first and foremost, not to the person who sent it to you, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're making a decision about how to respond to that person who cuts you off in traffic, you're responding not to them, but first and foremost, ultimately, to Jesus Christ. When you have a conversation with a friend about another friend, it's not to them primarily to which you are talking, even they're listening to your words. It is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. You may not feel like that person deserves a kind reply to that email. You may not feel like that driver d deserves a patient reply to their driving. You may not feel like that person deserves a kind word spoken about them, but it's not about what they do or do not deserve. It's about what Jesus deserves, and what you do is first and foremost an offering to Him. It's an audience of one, and that is in everything. There's not one square inch of your entire life that Jesus does not have claim to. Not one area of your entire life that Jesus cannot look and say emphatically, that is mine. You see, there's only one option to living for an audience of one. The only option that you have in living for an audience of one is to live a compartmentalized life. So you and I, every single one of us, we're living one of two kinds of lives. We're either living for an audience of one, or like the Colossians, we are living a compartmentalized life. That life is, uh, think of it this way, it's like life consists of boxes, not a box of chocolate, although that would be good for Gump theology, it's not good biblical theology. Instead, you think about life being just a bunch of boxes. 
and you got your spiritual box, your Jesus box, your church box, and you got your family box, and you got your marriage box, you got your business box, you've got your happiness box, you've you got your romantic life, all the different boxes that you have. And you don't mind giving Jesus his proper place in the Jesus box, it's just that you don't let the Jesus box interact with the others. You compartmentalize everything in your life. And when you begin to do that, you don't live for an audience of one. You end up living for every box that you have. And so instead of Jesus being the Lord of your marriage, Jesus is the Lord of your Jesus box, but you've got to be in control of the marriage box. And instead of Jesus being the Lord of your business, we keep him over here in his Jesus box, but we're going to use something else to drive our decisions in our business box. You tracking with me? And it's that kind of compartmentalized living that'll get you in trouble. It's that kind of living that will frustrate your life. In fact, I want to show you from the book of 1 Samuel a prime example of compartmentalized living. And it comes from the life of a man by the name of Saul. Now Saul was the first king. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul was the first king of Israel. And friend, from all appearances, it makes sense that he was the king. He was tall. He was handsome. He was rugged. He was very pastoral, I think. <laughs> Look, it's 2020. You <laughs> cut me some slack. And it made perfect sense why Saul would be the king. Hitcher tells us he was head and shoulders above everyone else. And Saul begins to rule, and things go fairly well at first. He's not compartmentalized living. He's living for an audience of one. He's got some victories. Israel's gaining some momentum. But then something happens. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel, this is the prophet of the day. This is Saul's pastor. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel, Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord, the audience of one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. Now the Amalekites were Israel's enemies all the way back to the Exodus. When Israel's coming out of Egypt, it is the Amalekites who come while they're defenseless and while they're helpless, and they attack them. And the Amalekites were constantly pillaging and and raiding the people of God. With Saul as king, God says, that's enough. I'm tired of it. Saul, I want you to lead a war of judgment. This is not a war of of conquest. This is not a war of revenge. This is a war of judgment. That is why you see the the, the very tense language of verse 3 about killing everyone, no matter how young or how old. Israel is to be used as God's instrument of judgment to execute judgment 
upon the Amalekites. They were to destroy, to destroy everything, to not take one thing as a spoil of war. Side note, this is not done anymore. This was a situation unique to Israel and the Old Testament. Look at what it says in verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as shore, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. He took him what? Now, all of a sudden, he shifted boxes. He took uh, the king Agag alive. And he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, which is just what God told them to do. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Somehow, somewhere, at some point, Saul began to live life compartmentalized. He said, okay, I'm going to obey God up to this point, but after this point, no more. And I'm going to start thinking how I should think it should go now. Now, when you read when it says that, that he took a Agag, sparing Agag was not an act of mercy. That was like you hunters, when you make a big kill, you mount that thing up on the wall. You fishermen, you catch that big bass. Nothing grows faster after it's dead than a fish, by the way. Uh, you catch that big bass and you mount it on the wall. It's your trophy. That's what kings who were captured in war, that's what they were. And, and Saul, no doubt in my mind, that Saul had in his heart that he would drag Agag out to, to brag about how great he was doing. You say, why do you think that? Look at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and God says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from, there's no longer an audience of one, he's turned back from following me. He has not performed my commandments, and Samuel was angry, and Samuel cried to the Lord all night, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. <clears throat> in Saul's mind, this is about one person. It's about Saul. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel, who pulls no punches, said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? If you killed them all, Saul, why am I hearing animals? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we devoted to destruction. Samuel, hey, I just decided this may be the best way to operate. I know what God said, but uh, we did some of it. And I, in the Jesus box, in the God box, he was kind of high up there, but I can think of a better way. Don't worry, Samuel. We even tithed on it. We saved the best to give to God. Verse 16 tells us that Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to Samuel, Speak. Samuel said, Though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? 
The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Why did you take for yourself, Saul, that which belongs to God? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. What? <laughs> I, and uh, Hang with me. I obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission to which the Lord sent me. I've I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Is it obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, doing what you think is best at the expense of what God said is best, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. (laughs) Saul said, I've done practically everything that God asked. Sure, there may be one or two things that I left undone. Surely God will grade on the curve. Now before we go, what an idiot Saul was. How often have we known what God was calling us to do? And we've jumped in up to the point of complete surrender. But we've stopped just short. After all, we've done most of what God's called us to do. After all, I'm at 99%. That's a lot better than so-and-so. I know them. They're at 80%. And all of a sudden, we find there's a little bit, there's a lot of bit of Saul in us. See, Samuel's question in verse 22. He says, Saul, are sacrifices what God wants? I mean, it's God in heaven so bored and so poor that he needs you to offer him some sheep. And don't miss the heaviness of verse 23. Look at what he says about divination and presumption and all that. This is, the tra- this is what he says. To take a portion of what belongs to God and to act as if it belongs to you in God's eyes is on the same level as worshiping Satan himself. Will you let that sink in for a moment? This is of divination, it's of witchcraft. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. To begin to try to put God in a box and to not let him interact with all that you have and all that you are, in God's eyes, it's like bowing down to Satan himself. God does not want your religion. God, this morning, does not need your money. He wants your surrender. He wants and he deserves the first place in everything, including your time, your talent, and your treasure. 
He wants to be the one to whom you offer your obedience. He desires to be the object of your life. He wants to be the one whom you seek to glorify in every aspect of your life. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, an audience of one, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The question, as we wrap it up this morning, that I believe God would pose to you, He posed it to me as I prepared, and I didn't like the question, and I struggled with my answer, and I'll be honest, I still struggle with how I'm going to answer God in this way. The question we need to answer today is not how religiously active we are. It's not how often do we do X, Y, and Z. The question before us this morning is simple, but it is challenging. Have you surrendered everything to God? Say, Pastor, that sounds like I'm going to give up a whole lot. That sounds like I'm not going to be able to be me. If I have to surrender everything to God, what's left for me? You're asking the wrong question. You see, in God's economy, when you surrender, you don't lose anything. In your relationship with God, you gain through surrender. In relationship with God, when you are weak, it's then that you are strong. So the question that I pose to you is, have you surrendered everything to God? Surrendering everything begins with surrendering your sin and receiving his salvation. See how you surrender sin and you gain salvation? Martin Luther called it the great exchange. We give God our sin, he gives us salvation. We give God our unrighteousness, he gives us his righteousness. We give God our unholiness, he makes us holy. When you surrender to God, you don't lose anything. Instead, you gain. What shall it profit a man if he gains this entire world? but he loses his own soul. If you have never surrendered your sin to Jesus, would you do that this morning? You don't even have to pray about if it's what God wants you to do. I know it's what God wants you to do. If there's never been a time in your life when you've surrendered your sin to Jesus, right where you are, in a couple of moments, we're going to have just a half minute of silence to where, as far as we're concerned, in that half minute of silence, for those 30 seconds, there's no one in this room except you and God. If you've never surrendered your sin to Jesus, and today you want to realize Him as your Lord and Savior, all you have to do is confess your sin to Jesus. Repent and ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. He's done all the work. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died so we can give Him our sin and receive salvation. There's no magic words to say. It's your heart that you petition before God. 
Maybe you've surrendered your sin to God and you've received his salvation. Are you living your life for an audience of one? In that span of those 30 seconds that we're about to just be us and God, we're going to do some business with God. In that moment, would you identify what you have yet to surrender? And today, leave it here. Because if you'll leave it here with God, you won't lose a thing. Because when you surrender to God, ultimately you gain. Every head bowed, every eye closed. For 30 seconds, just you and God right now. Father God, thank you for giving us all things that we need. Your Son surrendered it all to come to earth so that as we surrender ourselves to you, he could be the fullness of our lives. Lord, I pray if there's one here today that has yet to make you the Lord and Savior of their life, that today they would surrender their sin if they haven't already. And Father, I pray that you would help those of us who seek to walk with you to each and every day pick up our cross and to remember that our surrender does not cause us to lose anything of value, but rather we gain. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you made a decision this morning, if you made a decision for salvation, if there's another decision you need to make, take that yellow card in that pew in front of you. If you're online, go to fbcmilton.org and you'll find a link there to let us know the next step. We want to celebrate that step with you and help you take that next step. I do.